Good morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians. The very first sin ever committed was the sin of pride. It was the sin of exalting self. It occurred when Lucifer said in those words recorded in Isaiah 14, 14, I will make myself like the most high. And that not only became the point of failure for Satan, it really became the principle that he developed into his message that he proclaimed. In his first confrontation with man in the garden, he was preaching the gospel of the deification of self when he said to Eve, you will be like God. And it should be apparent to anyone with eyes to see that he is still advocating that same doctrine in sweeping measures today. The New Age movement, which we hear much about, is certainly nothing new. In fact, it's as old as sin itself. The New Age message is that you are God and God is you. One of the most influential New Age leaders, in fact, the fellow who's given credit for being one of the founders of the New Age movement is a guy named David Spangler. He lays out his message in his book, Reflections on the Christ. Sounds pretty good, listen. When man entered upon the pathway of self, he entered into a great creative adventure of learning the meaning of divinity by accepting to himself the responsibility of a microcosmic world unto whom he is the God. There he can say, I have fully and absolutely accepted the responsibility of who and what I am. The being that helps man to reach this point is Lucifer, the angel of man's evolution, the spirit of light in the microcosmic world. And then he goes on to say, Christ is the same force as Lucifer. Lucifer prepares man for the experience of Christhood. He is the great initiator. Lucifer works within each of us to bring us to wholeness, and as we move into a new age, each of us in some way is brought to that point which I term the Luciferic initiation. That many people now and in the days ahead will be facing, for it is the initiation into the new age. Wow. The Luciferic initiation, which means learning the meaning of divinity by accepting yourself as divine. Self-exaltation. The same message runs throughout the cults. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, said... The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. As man is, God was. As God is, man may become. Maharashi Mahesh Yogi, founder of Transcendental Meditation, uh, the guy who is given responsibility for bringing Transcendental Meditation to the West, Uh, noted spiritual leader of the Beatles, said, be still and know that you are God. 
Werner Earhart, founder of EST, Earnhardt Seminars Training, said, you are God in your universe. In fact, he was once asked, are you the reincarnation of Christ? And he said, no, I am the one who sent him. Sun Myung Moon, founder of the Unification Church, more commonly known as the Moonies, said, God and man are one. Man is incarnate God. Herbert W. Armstrong, founder of the Worldwide Church of God, they uh, had the program The World Tomorrow and the magazine called The Plain Truth. It wasn't plain and it wasn't true. He said, you are setting out on a training to become creator, to become God. What are those messages? Self-exaltation. And as we pointed out a few weeks ago in detail, this same teaching is the guiding force behind the human potential movement, the positive thinking movement. It's infiltrated the business community community with proponents like Napoleon Hill who said, we have the power to create our own world. You can make your life whatever you want it to be by self-confident faith in yourself. Always I know I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Self-exaltation. And it's penetrated the church today. Robert Schuller is the individual Eternity magazine called Christianity's number one TV preacher. On the website, their website, they claim a worldwide audience of 20 million people a week. As a side note, I noticed in the news that his church, the Crystal Cathedral, claimed bankruptcy in 2009. They had one million, $100 million in debt. Ironically, Schuler authored a book in 1984 entitled Living Debt Free. He promotes the same message of self-exaltation in his Hour of Power. Interesting name. The Hour of Power. He says, you make the world into anything you choose. Yes, you can make your world into whatever you want it to be. The cross will sanctify the ego trip. And in his book, Peace of Mind Through Possibility Thinking, he encourages people to participate in transcendental meditation, which is really Hinduism. And he suggests that you use as your mantra, I am, I am, I am, I am. Satan's message of self-exaltation has permeated every aspect of our world. And I want us to be aware of that for a couple reasons. Number one, so that we're not deceived into buying into it. And number two, so that we're not surprised because it's happening. The Bible told us that the world is going to embrace this concept. The Bible tells us that when the Antichrist comes, 2 Thessalonians 2.4 says he will set himself up in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And men will react to him according to Revelation 13, 8. By doing this, it says all who dwell on the earth will worship him. We are being set up for the concept of a man displaying himself as God on this earth. And not only does the Bible warn, warn us about the world 
embracing that concept, it also warns us that the professing church will embrace the same concept. In 2 Timothy 3.1, we have this warning. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, on and on. And then it comes down to verse 5, and it says, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. He's not talking about the world around us. He's talking about religious people. They are holding to a form of godliness, but they have denied its power. And what are the doctrines that they're holding on to? Loving self, loving money. Now, how do you hold to a form of godliness and deny its power? Well, you deny its power by saying, the power is in me. The power is in my words. I create my own universe by the things that I say. By possibility thinking, positive thinking, I actually create things in my world. The power is in me. Which raises a great question. Where is the power? Where do we find the power? If it's not found in me, if it's not found in self-exaltation, where do we find the power of God. Well, I want to see that answer unfold in our passage today as Paul talks about himself in a very personal way. And to get the context, I want us to back up a little bit from 2 Corinthians chapter 12 back into 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 30 where he says, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. If I have to boast, if I have to exalt myself, I'm going to point to my weakness. And that's what he did in this passage. If you go back to verse 23, he starts listing things he's done. And he says, I've been beaten, imprisoned, shipwrecked, stoned, persecuted. And then beyond that, in verse 28, beyond those external things, I'm overwhelmed with the daily pressure of concern for all the churches. And then just to emphasize how weak he is, he tells us in verses 31 and 33 that when he started out in his ministry, his very first attempt at ministry ended up with him being lowered in a basket over the wall of Damascus. So Paul says, if I'm going to boast, it's not going to be about positive things. It's going to be about negative things. It's going to be about my weakness which sets the stage for one more experience that he mentions as we enter into chapter 12. Notice verse 1. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Paul has talked about external things. He's talked about internal things. Now he's going to talk about visions and revelations. Visions are those things that he would see Revelations are those things that he would hear. And I want us this morning to look at Paul's experience in five parts. The first is the revelation. Notice verses 2 to 4. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, 
which a man is not permitted to speak. I don't know about you, but that raises some questions for me. One question would be, who received this revelation? Because Paul says, I know a man in Christ. Now, it sounds like Paul's talking about somebody he just happened to meet somewhere. But that's not who he's talking about. Because when we get to verse 7, notice what he says. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. This is Paul's revelation. You say, well, if it's Paul's revelation, why does he call himself a man in Christ? Why does he speak about himself in the third person? Well, let me give you a couple reasons. One is, I think he wanted to make it clear to us that this was all God's doing. So Paul talks about a man in Christ. It's almost like he went through this experience like a spectator would, kind of watching what was going on and having no part in it because it was all God's doing that accomplished this. He was caught up to heaven. Secondly, I think he wanted to make the point that he didn't have this experience because of any requirements in him. He didn't say, I knew a great apostle who got caught up to heaven. He said, I knew what? A man in Christ. Which means that's the only qualification he had. He was in Christ. It could have happened to anybody who was in Christ. There was nothing special about Paul. And so it was all God's doing, and the only requirement that Paul had was that he was in Christ. Now, what happened? Well, it says he was caught up to the third heaven. We said a couple weeks ago that the Bible uses that term heaven three different ways. It uses it of the earth's atmosphere where the birds fly in the heavens. It uses it of the stars where the stars are in the heavens. And then it's used here of the third heaven where God dwells. So Paul went through the atmosphere, he went through the universe, and he went into the third heaven. Now, I would have been a little curious as I went through those other two heavens to say, I'd like to check this out a little bit. But he goes right into the third heaven, which he again calls uh, the paradise, or, or paradise, which is a Persian word that means the garden of the king. We said that that's the same word used in the Septuagint of the Garden of Eden. It's called paradise. It's called the garden of the king. It's the same place that Jesus turned to the thief on the cross and said, today you will be with me in paradise, the garden of God. And Paul was caught up into the third heaven, caught up into the paradise of God. Now, when did this happen? Well, Paul tells us it happened in verse 2, 14 years ago. Now, this is not the Damascus Road experience because that would have happened about 20 years prior to this. And the Damascus Road experience was something Paul talked about all the time. Every time he got a chance, he told his testimony, and it included the Damascus Road experience. This is something he's hesitating to tell them. In fact, apparently he didn't tell a whole lot of people about this. He had obviously never told the Corinthians about it. And he tells them 14 years later. Now, I guarantee you that if I got caught up to heaven yesterday, I would be telling you about it today as humbly as I could. But Paul holds on to this for 14 years before he finally tells them about it. Some people suggest that this may have happened 
in the incident in Acts 14 where he was stoned and left for dead. That maybe as Paul was stoned and left there, that this is when he had this experience where he went into paradise and came back. That would be a rude awakening, wouldn't it? Come back out of paradise and you're all beat up and bloodied, having been stoned and left for dead. How did it happen? Well, twice Paul says, I don't know. My favorite answer. I don't, he says, I don't know if I was in my body or out of my body. I don't know. God knows. God, God does this all the time. He takes people into the third heaven all the time. People die as believers every day, and he takes them into paradise. Now, he normally doesn't take them before they die. So this is an exception for Paul. What I like about this is that whether you're in heaven or on earth, you're just as real. The Bible says in Ephesians 3.15, we have the whole family of God in heaven and on earth. Some are here, some are there. They're all the family of God. But get this. What I find significant here is that Paul didn't even notice whether he was in his body or out of his body. What does that tell us? It tells us that the physical is not the big deal in heaven. Can you imagine that? We're all going around going, is my tie straight? You know, how do I look today? Paul goes up to heaven, he doesn't even notice if he's got a body. Because the focal point of heaven is not about the body. It's not about the physical when he gets there. You say, well, why did this happen? Why did he go up to heaven and come back if if he wasn't going to tell anybody? In fact, if you look in verse 4, it says he was told not to tell. In fact, he, he couldn't tell anybody. It was inexpressible words that he heard and he couldn't tell anybody. Not permitted to tell anybody. You say, well, why would he have this experience? Well, the only good reason I can come up with is that this particular revelation was for Paul alone. You know, when he lists his sufferings in the previous chapter, anybody here match those? Not me. And I'm thinking, maybe God gave Paul all these sufferings, and along with those sufferings, he gave him some special encouragement by saying, I'm going to let you come up here and spend a a little time with me to kind of give you some encouragement for all the sufferings that you're going to go through in life. That was the revelation. Secondly is the reaction. Look at verse 5. On behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. On behalf of such a man I will boast. What kind of man? A man in Christ. And how does a man get into Christ? By grace alone. So Paul says, I I will boast about a man in Christ because the only way you get into Christ is by grace. So I'm really boasting about God and his grace. In fact, Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I'll brag about that man, the man in Christ, because that's all about God's Grace, But in, co- in contrast, on my own behalf, when it comes to me, when it comes to Paul, my only boast 
is in my weakness. And then thirdly, we see the restraint in verses 6 and 7. Notice verse 6. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. You ever say, I'm going I'm to tell you something, you're probably not going to believe it, but trust me, it's true? Well, Paul's saying, if I wanted to boast like the false teachers do, I could boast, and I wouldn't have to exaggerate. It would all be true. I mean, you talk about a trump card when you're having a discussion. Oh, so you've been to Paris? I've been to paradise. You know, I mean, you bring this one out, and you just kind of shut down the conversation every time. But Paul says, I'm not going to do that, And, and he has really two restraints. The first was Paul himself. Notice the end of verse 6. He says, but I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul says, I choose not to talk about this experience because I don't want people to be impressed with me because of my experience. When someone evaluates me, Paul says, I simply want them to evaluate me on the basis of what I do, my actions, and what I say, my words. So Paul is refraining himself. He's done a pretty good job. For 14 years, he hasn't said a word about it. And now, in this context, he finally brings it up. But there's a second restraint. Not only was Paul restraining, but God was restraining. Notice verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason... To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, how did a person who had been to the third heaven maintain his humility? God gave him a little help. You know, even with Paul refraining himself, it's still very easy for the ego to take over and for pride to take over. Pride is very subtle. And so God says, okay, Paul, you're refraining yourself, but I'm going to give you a little help in this situation. You ever think you've got uh, your pride under control and all of a sudden it shows up uglier than you ever imagined? doesn't take much to initiate pride. D.L. Moody one time was struggling with pride and So he's talking to a friend about it, and the friend suggested a remedy. He said, I I suggest that you make a placard, wood on each side with a strap over your shoulders, and on the front of the the, the placard put, I am a fool for Christ. And on the back of the placard put, whose fool are you? And then walk all over Chicago with it. That'll keep you humble. So D.L. Moody makes the placard, he puts it on, he walks throughout the streets of Chicago, walks all day and all night in Chicago. He gets back to his apartment at the end of the day, taking off the placard, and he says, there's probably not another person in this city that would have done what I just did. Pride is subtle, and we're all prone to it. And because of the greatness of the revelations, God gave Paul something something to keep him from exalting himself. He gave him the antidote to pride, which in this case is a thorn in the flesh. Now notice something. Where did the thorn come from? It came from 
Satan. Whose purpose did it accomplish? It accomplished God's purpose. You see, Satan's goal is to get you to exalt yourself. He gave Paul a thorn in the flesh, and what did it accomplish? It accomplished humbling Paul before the Lord. You say, well, how can that happen? Well, you know, sometimes we think about God and Satan being at battle, and we think that they're even participants in the battle. This battle isn't fair, because God is a sovereign God. And Satan can't do one single thing to a child of God without God's permission. That's what we learn in the book of Job. And when from your perspective something goes wrong in your life, guess what? God has not lost control. He's still in control. Even the painful things, even the thorns, even the difficulties in your life are all part of God's purpose to work things out in your life. The Bible says God works all things together for good. I like what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50, 20. They had done all those negative things to him. He said to them, you meant them for evil, but God meant them for good. That's exactly what Paul could say to Satan in this situation. He brought a thorn into Paul's flesh. He meant it for evil. God turned it around for good. You say, well, what is the thorn in Paul's flesh? Well, let me ask a secondary question first. Can you ask a secondary question first? Before we answer what the thorn is, let's answer the question, what is the flesh? Because the Bible uses that phrase flesh two ways. It uses the word, the term flesh of our fallen human nature, and it uses the term flesh of our physical body. So which one is he talking about? The reformers said that he was talking about Paul's fallen human nature, in which case the thorn becomes a spiritual thorn. It is temptations and lustful thoughts and those kind of things. I have a problem with that interpretation. Because if you take it that way, then you find Paul kind of making excuses for his fallen human nature. I have a tougher time with temptation because I got this thorn in my fallen nature. You know, that, that's an odd excuse to be giving. In fact, Paul's the one who said in 2 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is what? Common to man. So you can't go around saying, I got tougher temptation than you do, pal. That's why I'm struggling so much. And secondly, it's contrary to Paul's teaching elsewhere about the flesh because in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. And in Galatians 5.24, he says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. See, I don't understand how a thorn can bother the flesh if it's crucified. I don't understand why a thorn would bother someone who's got nails in his flesh. And I don't understand how Paul could be praying and ask God, asking God to remove a thorn from a dead man. Because your flesh, your fallen human nature is dead. So I think it's clear to me that he's talking here about the flesh. When he's talking about the flesh, he's talking about 
our human bodies. So he's talking about this physical body that Paul walked around in, and it had a thorn in it. You say, well, what was the thorn? Well, let me show you what I think it was. Look in the next book after 2 Corinthians, Galatians, chapter 4, and verse 13. Paul says, But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. For some reason, Paul preached to them, it had to do with a bodily affliction, a bodily illness. Verse 14, And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. Now that's interesting. Paul had a physical illness in his body, and he doesn't call it a trial to him. He calls it a trial to you. And he says, you did not despise or loathe. Those are two words that mean to spit at. So Paul had a physical affirmity, and it caused him to minister to these people, but he says they didn't react a natural way. They didn't spit at him. What was the affliction? Look at verse 15. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Whatever was wrong with Paul had something to do with his eyes. And it was a situation that normal people looked at him and wanted to just go, bleh. In fact, this is further confirmed in the next chapter when you come to Galatians chapter 6 and he's closing out the book. Notice verse 11. He says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Why did he write with large letters? Because he couldn't see very well. You see, I believe Paul had a problem physically. And I believe that problem had to do with his eyes. And whatever it was wrong with his eyes caused his eyes to run down with pus, do something that was despicable, that caused people, it to be a trial, not only to Paul, but to other people to look at. You say, well, how would that make Paul humble? Well, think about it. Somebody says to Paul, I'd like you to meet somebody. They've been dying to meet you. And that person comes up, oh, I've waited my whole life to meet you. I've heard so much about you. How do you do? Get the kids back. Here's the great apostle Paul. Whenever he meets someone, their first reaction is, I want to spit, but it's not polite. You know, his eyes are just disgusting. There's something about Paul that is offensive to people, and it kept him humble on a regular basis. Which brings us to the response. Verse 8. If I can get back there. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. That's interesting. That's exactly what Jesus did in the garden. He prayed three times that the cup would pass from him. Paul says, I prayed three times that God would take this 
away. You know what the response was? No, no, no. Now, why did Paul not get his prayer answered? Is it because he wasn't positive enough? Was it because he didn't speak the right words? Was it because he didn't have enough faith? No. It's because he was praying to a sovereign God who in his wisdom and his grace and his mercy works things out according to his purpose. Let me ask you a personal question. If you've been a Christian for a while, you should be able to answer this. Would you always want to get what you ask for? Would you? Think about examples in the Bible. Abraham in Genesis 17, 18 prayed to God and said, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. What if God had answered that? Would have messed up the whole history of mankind. In 1 Kings 19.4, Elijah bowed before God and said, Oh Lord, take my life. God didn't answer that prayer. In fact, God never answered that prayer. Because Elijah never died. He was taken up to heaven. In Matthew 26.44, Jesus said, Let this cup pass from me. What if God had answered that prayer? You'd be lost today. And here Paul has a thorn in his flesh, and he says, God, take the thorn away. And God said, no. Now, why was the answer no? Look at verse 9. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul needed to learn a couple principles. One was God's grace is sufficient. Now, if God never lets you go any, through any pain, are you going to ever discover that God's grace is sufficient? No. If every time you get a problem, you say, Lord, take the problem away, and he takes it immediately away, you're not, never going to experience the reality that God's grace is sufficient for you. In fact, I would go this far. The time in my life when God's grace is most evident is the time in my life when I'm suffering the most. So God allows that suffering, he allows that pain, he allows that thorn so that I can experience his grace and declare in truth it's sufficient. But there's a second principle Paul had to learn, and that is the paradox of God's power. You see, weakness is not an obstacle to the power of God. Weakness is actually a condition for the power of God. So Paul's praying, take the thorn away, and and God's saying, well, if I take the thorn away, then you're not going to experience my power because my power is perfected in weakness. And that's the paradox of power, which brings us to the fifth and final point, and that is the resolve At the end of verse 9, Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. There's his resolve. 
I hear a lot of people get into trouble in situations. They get into a painful situation, and they immediately say, pray for me that I'll be strong. That's the last thing you need to be praying for. God's trying to show you you're not strong. The thing you need to be is weak. The thing you need to be is surrendered to him and say, God, I'm too weak. I can't handle this. Paul discovers this thorn in his flesh. He can't get rid of it, and he says, now I gladly embrace the thorn, and I embrace the weakness because it's only when I experience that weakness that God's power shows up. And so he goes on in verse 10 to say, therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's going to boast about weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties. He welcomes them. He's content with them because they serve to enact God's principle of power in his life. When I am weak, then I'm strong. And this just underlines a principle that we've seen throughout the book of 2 Corinthians. In fact, I said at the beginning, it's the theme of the book. It's the message of the new covenant. And that message is, all of God and none of me. And we've seen it throughout this book. God's adequacy is manifest through my inadequacy. God's life is manifest through my death. And God's power is manifest through my weakness. So as we close today, let me ask you two questions. Have you got a thorn in your flesh? Have you got a thorn in your flesh? By all means, ask God to take it away. Paul did. You should. But while you're praying to ask God to take it away, be listening because God may be saying, I have a purpose in your pain. I'm going to leave that in your life a little longer because I want to change not just your comfort level, but your character. So when you're praying, don't just tell God or ask God to take it away. Listen to God because he may be giving you the reason why he's leaving it in your life. Second question, have you discovered the paradox of power? Satan is saying power is found in self-exaltation. God is saying power is found in self-renunciation. Satan is telling you that power is found in self-deification. God is saying power is found in self-denial. So as we close our service today, I'm going to ask you to consider this question. Have you resolved, along with Paul, to stop trying to be strong in yourself and embrace your weakness? so that God's power can show up in your life. I'm going to have the praise team come back as we close our service and as we reflect on that question.